When we think about resilience and business continuity, most of us tend to think about the private sector, corporate enterprise, small business. But does resilience look any different in the public sector? Hello everyone and welcome to episode 65 as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host Mark Hoffman and today I'm joined by 2022 winner of the BCI Europe Award for Continuity and Resilience Public Professional, Juliana Richardson. Juliana is unique among my guests for two reasons. First, she got into the resilience industry intentionally and second, she focuses exclusively on public sector work. I think you'll find it an interesting conversation. But first, Lisa has an important message. Hello, I'm Lisa Jones, one of the managing partners of the Resilience Think Tank. I want to take a minute before we get to today's guest to tell you about a special event called Pay It Forward Saturday. On Saturday, December 24th, we are encouraging followers of the Resilience Think Tank and listeners of the Resilient Journey to go out and do an intentional act of kindness for someone. It can be as simple as buying a cup of coffee for a person behind you in line, buying a stranger's breakfast, donating to a local food bank, or anything that will make someone smile during the stressful holiday season. Then I encourage you to drop us a line on LinkedIn, letting us know how you paid it forward. Don't forget, that's Pay It Forward Saturday, December 24th. Back to you, Mark. Juliana, welcome to the podcast. You and I just met at BCI World just a few weeks ago from the from the time that this was recorded. Um, you were assigned to help me be organized as a speaker, which I would have been, I don't know, I would have been lost without you. I would have, who knows, I would have been speaking out in the hallway or whatever. So thank you for keeping me organized. Um, tell the audience a little bit about your background. And then something I've started recently, tell us something that we might not know about you. Oh gosh, okay, I'll leave that one to the to after. So um, I started in kind of this field, I did a degree, um, disaster management and emergency planning. I'm not sure my parents were super impressed when I initially said I was gonna do it. I think they they weren't really sure what the degree was, but I think they're, I think they're okay with it now, which is good. Um, and then since then, I've just worked in the public sector. So I went um, into a local council and local resilience forum moved into London and worked for a um, local borough, um, which was one that had quite a few challenges. It had a very rich end and then quite a deprived end. So that presented different challenges to working down in the south. Um, and now I'm working at Moorfields Eye Hospital as the emergency planning lead. So that's how I got to where I am. Um, and I guess something people probably don't know, I play the piano and saxophone. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. See, that's something I didn't know. And uh, um, I wouldn't be as bold as to say I play the piano, but I do play at it and I have fun with it. And uh, so that's something we have in common. One of the things that jumped out at me about what you said when you were introducing yourself is that you were intentional about getting into this industry and not everybody is. A lot of people will say, oh, I don't know. I didn't expect to do this. I got pushed into it or whatever. And that leads me into my next question, because I want to focus on resilience in the public sector in this episode. And you're the right person to, to do that with. I mean, after all, you are the winner of the 2022 BCI Europe Continuity and Resilience Public Professional of the Year Award. 
So congratulations for that. That's that's cool to have you uh, on with uh, those you know lofty credentials. Do you think that people who come out of university with a degree in emergency management tend to drift more towards public sector? Is is that education geared more towards public sector? Yeah, definitely. So my degree was split into two. So you could either go down the disaster management, so your charities, your NGOs kind of going to disaster zones and helping with the recovery, or you could go down more the public sector route. There wasn't what we were taught in uni didn't really kind of fit with going into the private. It was all about the Civil Contingencies Act, more emergency planning with a really small part of it being business continuity. So definitely think specifically the degree I did, did push you down the public sector path. That's interesting. And so you're doing emergency planning for the eye hospital, as you mentioned, that's that's going to be part of NHS. Yeah. So talk about what emergency planning is and what, what areas your role focuses on then. So in the trust that I'm in now, I do the emergency planning for the entire trust and we don't just have one site. Um, like some hospitals, we have um, our main site and then we have about 26 satellite sites which sit at different hospitals around London and some just outside of London. So it's quite a big responsibility to do emergency planning and business continuity for the whole site. So I'm responsible for maintaining plans and um, training staff at the various on-call levels, making sure business continuity plans are up to date, liaising with all our different partner agencies, which when you're across the whole of London is a lot bigger than if you're just doing it within your local area. So really everything under emergency planning, business continuity, resilience falls under my role. And how big is your team? Um, so it's a team of one. So I'm just the only person doing it. So there's something that's in common, whether you're public sector or private sector. The teams are often very small. The uh, the presentation that you helped me with in, in London at BCI World was kind of focused on the teams of one. And so yeah. that, that really resonated with you, didn't it? Definitely. And being a team of one is not uncommon around the trust in London. It's only kind of your bigger trusts that deal with your major incident type or your trauma centers that actually have a bigger team and when we say bigger team that's three or four people that's not 10 15 people so a main hospital location and then 26 satellite sites business continuity and emergency management and it's all on you yeah wow thanks for taking a few minutes out of your time i'm not sure how you carved out time for the interview but uh, I, i appreciate it so maybe that starts to answer this question because I wanted to kind of dig into your award a little bit. For this award, uh, the BCI look for evidence of how you used creative and original approaches to improve overall resilience. Can you talk about that approach a little bit and and what you did to make the hospital more resilient? Um, so I joined the hospital on the day that England went into our fourth lockdown. And um, so that was a great time to start a new job um, and as part of the first thing that I did was look at business continuity we were in a pandemic we were sending stuff to other sites cutting down our activity and we didn't have up-to-date business continuity plans within the organization which was a bit confusing considering we'd been through a pandemic but we were focused on patients and not necessarily our internal processes. So as part of my first remit, I 
went and updated every single business continuity plan, not just me on my own. So my approach to getting, I would say, organisational resilience, which I know has been quite a buzzword recently, um, was to set up drop-in sessions with a new template that was a lot easier to fill in. So our old one required a calculator. I'm not a maths person at all. So anything that involves a calculator, I was like, no, we'll start from scratch. So I went through the template with every service user, um, told them how you should fill it in, was there to help them, said to them, I can help you to a reason. I don't know the intricacies of each of your department. I know that we have, say, medical retina, glaucoma, past that, I'm not an expert. Um, and just went through the template, got them all up to date, and then coincided business continuity awareness week with testing them all. But again, I didn't leave them on their own. I gave them those template exercises to do so that nice. they didn't have to add another task to their list and that they had it readily available. And since then, we've repeated that again this year and got a 98% success rate with all our BCPs. Can you talk a little bit about when you say 98% success, what kind of things are you measuring? So we have deadlines. Um, for when they have to be submitted by. So our deadline is the 31st of March, um, right. going into the new financial year. And um, at that point, we had 98% of the plans signed off at a directorate level by myself and clinical directors. And our audit spreadsheet was mainly green. There's a few that slip, but we work in a hospital. We have operational pressures that just come and go as they are needed. So there is some kind of leeway with it um but it's mainly measured by date wait there's so many things so many jumping off points there because you're right part of running a successful program is that relationship building with the business i'll use the term business yeah. in, in this particular case a little bit loosely but uh sometimes there's this negotiation skill these soft skills that we require and and, and i appreciate that you did that and then you also talked about how high stress of an environment it is as a matter of fact you wrote an article not too long ago didn't you uh for the bci called planning in the public sector in which you say that implementing business continuity in an organization like that where staff are already stretched thin that's a real significant challenge is negotiating and and being flexible part of that how did you manage that yeah definitely so definitely being flexible to their schedule and understanding that they might, especially in a hospital, not work a nine till five day um, and knowing when their breaks are. But I think another key one and probably partly the naive part of me coming out of university, I did my first um, BIA training session with some um, council workers and gave them all the acronyms, MTPD, everything. And I just had blank faces back at me. Right. And I, and then the next time I went, I explained the acronyms and I still kind of had those blank faces of why am I here? And it wasn't until that that I realised that it's fine to go and do these sessions. But if you don't relate it back to them, they don't know why they're doing it and they don't understand the importance. Yeah. So I think especially in public sector, relating it and saying, if you don't do it, this is what will happen to your service is really important to getting that message across about why we do need to be business continuity plans in the organization. 
it has to be relevant to them. Otherwise, it just feels like it's a check the box kind of a. Exactly. Yeah. Um, can you explain a little bit uh, about the balance between being flexible and saying to someone, okay, look, I'm, I can work with you here on this deadline and not letting that get away from you to the point where you get disrespected or, or maybe um, it goes so far away that they just stop responding to you at all. Yeah. So that is a challenge that I have faced, not necessarily in the organization where I am, but in previous ones where they are a lot bigger. Um, Mine's quite a small organization. So you see most people on a weekly basis. So you can just kind of in the coffee area, just say, oh, your BCP is ready for review. Um, But outside in previous roles, I just found it so important to get that top level buy-in because people don't, some people won't listen to you, especially in kind of local authority where there's hierarchy and there's heads of service, directors. If you're not on that same level and they have 50 other things to do, they're not going to prioritise your um, kind of role and your work because you're almost not as important as they need you to be. So I think getting that top level buy-in and having those directors going and speaking to their staff and telling them, this is why we need you to do it. Here are the people who will work with you and will help you as much as they can is so important to having an effective program. So far, a lot of what we've talked about, public sector, private sector, is very, very similar. We have similar challenges in terms of team size, the importance of that executive buy-in and things like that. But I have a feeling there's going to be some differences and we'll get to those in a minute. You said something in your LinkedIn profile that I thought was really interesting. You call yourself a resilience professional with a specific interest in business continuity. Now, for somebody like me, words matter. You heard me say at the uh, at BCI World that I'm a resilience nerd. And so these words are important to me, right? They they matter. And I think it's becoming a bit of an interesting conversation, isn't it, within our industry? So let me ask you this. When you see these two terms, resilience, business continuity, what's the difference between the two? So I think for me in the public sector, resilience encompasses the emergency planning type side of it, because that is my, I would say probably 75% of my role in the public sector. We're all about helping our communities, helping our patients and making sure that they are the priority when an incident hits. And that's why I took business continuity out of it and made specific reference, because I do love business continuity. I'm probably a small minority in the public sector that do love it and have such a passion for it, which is why I split it out. So I kind of see resilience as the overall picture of everything bundled together, emergency planning, business continuity, risk, all that. And then taking business continuity out is more looking at your business and making sure that you can survive that incident, which in the public sector, we're probably not as good at doing because we're more focused on our patients and communities. That's one of the things that I'm going to ask you now as we kind of move into calling out some of the differences between public and private. Um, I did some work a long time ago for uh, municipalities, uh, some large cities uh, in Canada uh, and some smaller municipalities and even at the second tier, the county level. And, you know, I, I understand 
it's a different business model. You came out of university, and as you said, you've stayed in the public sector, NHS, London Borough of Camden, Kent County, et cetera. So let's talk about some of those uh, some of those differences. Um, I think a lot of the industry training outside of university is geared towards corporate BCP rather than public sector. Would you agree with that? Yes, definitely. So it's very much that corporate wording, how you would deliver it in a corporate setting where you've probably, dare I say it, got a little bit more money and a little bit more buy-in before you've even started trying to sell it than in the public sector. Um, we don't send people so much on courses um, because we don't have the budget and we need to get that buy-in. So I definitely think that most of the courses out there and the training and how it's delivered is very corporately based and doesn't necessarily translate into the public sector as well as it maybe could do, which then does hinder when we're trying to potentially send our staff on these training sessions to get a wider awareness. They do sometimes coming back going, I don't know how this relates to my role in the public sector. And then you almost have to do another training session on the same thing, but relating it back. When I was trying to do business continuity for a county government one time, one of the things, and I was young in my career and I didn't have some of the tools that I have now, certainly didn't have the experience that I have now. But the pushback that I got from the management team was, why do we have to worry about business continuity? We're a government agency. It's not like we can fail. Do you run into that? And how do you combat that? Yeah, so I think more in the UK, it's not necessarily the failing aspect. It's the, we always put emergency planning at the forefront. So you'll see that my title is emergency planning lead. Um, in my last job, I was emergency management and business continuity. Emergency planning is always first. If you look at job descriptions, it's always about emergency management and business continuity is that one bullet point right at the end. It might say desirable to have a BC qualification, but more often than not, it doesn't. So I think we've, we're very good at forgetting that actually, yes, it's fine that we need to put our communities first. That's what we're here for. That's why we work in the public sector. But if we can't protect our own business during an incident, how are we meant to protect our customers and our communities, our patients? So yeah, maybe not so much fail, um, although there is very much that with asking for mutual aid, it's very much not, it's yeah, not a thing last resort to ask for mutual aid because it is seen as you can't cope and you're having to ask other people to help you. So yeah, there is definitely that kind of side to it, but also we, we forget about ourselves sometimes, which on a private sector corporate level, it's all about making sure that you can continue in that incident. I really like what you described there because you've made it relevant. Yeah. Right. You've made it relevant to the organization. And if people look at just sort of one slice of traditional business continuity and say, well, this doesn't apply here. No, that's fine. It doesn't. But emergency management is the critical backbone of that. And in in the public sector and, and in public or private, I guess it doesn't matter. You can use things like that. And we've talked about this before where... If people are concerned about cyber or if they're concerned about supply chain, 
then leverage that stuff. Yeah. Right. And and it's the same thing that you're doing there with emergency management, because whatever organization you're working for in the public sector needs to be seen as stable when it comes to dealing with an emergency, right? Yeah, exactly. And you touched on cybersecurity. If we're having a cyber incident internally, we can't see patients. Our IT systems are potentially compromised. So we can't deliver that service of care that we want. So actually, we need to protect ourselves against those risks we can do in order that we can deliver that patient care, which is what our nurses, doctors work in our organization for. One of the big trends that, of course, everybody has seen since COVID is people working from home. Uh, an eye hospital is not going to necessarily be as <laughs> likely to, to to see p- patients in your living room. Uh, how has that been a challenge for you regarding pandemic and people working in a traditional office setting or hospital setting uh, when when dealing with things like a pandemic? So you say say about um, seeing people in the living room, we actually developed a virtual A&E, if you like, during um, COVID. So we can actually see people virtually um, if, our, if people don't want to travel into London to our A&E. But yeah, people working from home has just almost in the NHS kind of added extra layers to resilience and business continuity that we've never had to face before, like kind of people using their own Wi-Fi, their own networks. Mm-hmm. We all just worked on site because you're right, when 90% of our staff are nurses, clinicians, you can't give someone an IV, IV drop over Zoom. You have to be there with them. So it's definitely caused more issues um, in the beginning term of learning how to work virtually all of our plans were set up for we all get in a room we all do our meetings command and control is very much on site most of us still had satellite phones up till a couple of years ago where you'd have to go and stand in the one space in your building where you could actually get signal none of that none of that works for us anymore um so it's been a massive culture shift for an organization where actually we were pretty much pen and paper still and hadn't really ventured probably like most private sector companies had into your instant management systems, your mass comm systems. We were still running up and down corridors to let people know. You you talk a little bit about the, the emergency management process. You talked about command and control in public sector you would tend to use more of an incident command system, an ICS approach. Is that the approach you're using? So, yeah. So in um, the NHS, we use um, operational and tactical strategic or gold, silver, bronze to deal with any incident that we have. Um, And we do that for a business continuity issue or an emergency management type of issue. Although I have seen, especially since the pandemic, they blended together more. Before the pandemic, it was very much yeah, this is an emergency planning issue. Yeah, this is a business continuity. But the pandemic started as a emergency planning issue, but slowly went into a BC issue with staff shortages, supply chain issues. It became almost less about your communities and more about can we keep staffing our hospitals and our key services. And that was across the council as well. I did nine months working from home there because we all suddenly weren't allowed to go in the office. Um, so, yeah, we use that kind of um, command and control, 
um, structure for now any incident, regardless of what we're going to define it. And we actually almost stop and try and not define something as a major incident or a business continuity incident if we don't have to because of those separations in kind of people's thinking. If we blend it together, people almost start thinking about all the aspects, not just one. It starts to work. In that case, it's almost like the label adds confusion rather than clarity. Yeah, definitely. And that's why in our business continuity plans, we've kind of gone sections of you've lost staff. It doesn't matter why you've lost staff. You could lose some industrial action. They're all sick. They've all won the lottery and gone to the Bahamas. You're following the same process. Splitting it down in the public sector seems to worry people more in times of crisis because you have one small thing that isn't in the plan and people almost can't then respond to it effectively because it's not written in the plan so it isn't there when actually it is you just need to be a bit flexible again well one of the things that we do in ics right and and correct me if i'm if i'm going down the wrong path here um is that as part of that cyclical process we're building an incident action plan at time of crisis if line three of that incident action plan can be execute your business continuity plan how much further ahead are you compared to having to then lay out what the business continuity plan might otherwise have to say exactly and we have very much template kind of agendas for our ics when they set up but they're only for the first meeting because going through the incident they change but going back to your kind of point around plans it was really interesting at bci world um one of the speakers said put your hands up who actually uses a plan in an incident i think three people put their hands up that was really interesting to see right maybe we have these plans but do we need to change them? Do we need to look at other ways of using them? Because clearly none of us actually use them during an incident. I like the idea of being principle-based in our plans. So for example, when police or fire services respond to an active incident, they're not referring to a plan. They have their training, they know what to do. And I like that. And I think there's real value in that. Yeah, definitely. And we try and align to that as much as we can so that we're all talking on the same page when we get to an incident because there's nothing worse and they brought in kind of a new model that should alleviate this issue but there's nothing worse than going to a incident scene and the police saying an acronym fire brigade saying the same acronym but they one means armed response vehicle and one something to do with an aerial ladder and no one knows what they're talking about so everyone being kind of aligned to those same principles just makes the first hour of an instance so much easier to kind of manage effectively, which is what we're all trying to do. Right. And what you want to try to avoid doing is walking around in circles, trying to figure out where where your first step should be. And that's where the training and the exercises come in. So there are some similarities, a lot of similarities between public sector, private sector. Yeah, there are some differences. Um, but I appreciate you uh, spending some time with us. So I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, you're an interesting person. How would people connect with you should they want to? Um, so I've got a LinkedIn page. So it's just Juliana Richardson. Um, and that can message me. Um, and I think there's my email address on there as well. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best way of connecting with me on LinkedIn. All right. Thanks for sharing some uh, insights about public sector and emergency management and business continuity. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast.
Thanks for having me. It's been great chatting to you. I want to thank Juliana Richardson for being my guest today and sharing some of the similarities and differences between public and private sector work. Also, a huge thanks, as always, to the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the Resilient Journey podcast. Don't forget, December 24th is Pay It Forward Saturday. Go out and do an intentional act of kindness for someone as part of a way to give back and to pay it forward during the holiday season. An interesting guest next week is David Fabrash joins us to talk about cyber and how it triggers business continuity and resilience. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.